A rescue operation is currently underway in various cities of Ukraine following the impact of Russian missiles and the falling debris. It is crucial for the world to react to this latest act of terror. All that's certain about 2024 is uncertainty. Is some kind of peace possible in Ukraine or between Israel and Palestinians? Or could these conflicts actually worsen, widen in Europe, even divide NATO? Today, let's be clear, democracy is still at risk. This is not hyperbole. We can't take democracy for granted. Biden or Trump for the White House? Is there no one else? What would a second Trump presidency mean for America's role in the world, or perhaps retreat from it? Abuse of the law is going to produce a backlash, the likes of which nobody has ever seen before. In Europe, while Poland rejected the far right, many Dutch voters endorse Heert Wilders. Hungary's Viktor Orban has joined the EU Awkward squad over Ukraine and other matters. In Brussels, bureaucrats are living in a bubble. And beyond these known unknowns, as former U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld used to call them, what are the surprises, wild cards, or even the possibility of, whisper this, good news? We should all remember, democracies don't have to die at the end of a rifle. They can die when people are silent, when they fail to stand up or condemn the threats to democracy. This is not a drill. Hello and welcome to This Is Not A Drill. I'm Gavin Esler. At a time when, traditionally, we wish each other Happy New Year, after the conflicts and crises of 2023, does optimism about a happier 2024 mark the triumph of hope over experience? I'm delighted to be peering into the potential future of war, peace and diplomacy with Lord Ricketts. For some years, Peter Ricketts has been one of the United Kingdom's best-informed and most trusted diplomats. He chaired Britain's Joint Intelligence Committee under Tony Blair. He was Britain's ambassador to France and also the UK's first-ever national security advisor. Now, Lord Ricketts is a crossbench peer and chair of the House of Lords European Affairs Committee and author of Hard Choices about Britain's future in the world. Hello, Peter. Hello, Gavin, and Happy New Year to you right at the outset. Happy New Year. Let's begin with Ukraine, if we may, because it's the most pressing one for most of us in Europe. And could I suggest that no resolution in sight is something that many commentators think only benefits Vladimir Putin, because he hopes Western resolve will crumble eventually. Do do you agree with that kind of analysis? Well, Gavin, I don't really. Uh, I think what the Ukrainians have discovered this year is that in this kind of First World War style trench warfare, Attacking is very difficult. Uh, The defender has the advantage. Uh, And just as the Russians failed in their attack last year, uh, in this last 12 months, uh, Ukraine has really struggled with its counteroffensive. And so things have reached a bit of a stalemate. And there is a mood music around that perhaps that puts Russia on the front foot, that West is beginning to lose its um, stamina, 
uh, its resilience for the fight. I don't really see it like that. I think if there's been a strategic loser so far, it's been Vladimir Putin. He hasn't achieved any of his initial military objectives. He's made NATO larger and stronger. He's forced the European Union to wean itself off dependence on Russian energy. He's lost huge casualties without really making any significant ground inside Ukraine. And now he's forced into a junior partnership with China. Therefore, I think there is a prospect this year of the stalemate settling into some sort of armed truce uh, or armistice. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad outcome for Ukraine. Uh, We've committed to bringing Ukraine into NATO and into the EU. That will, of course, take time. But imagine in 10 years' time, if NATO has brought in Ukraine, if the European Union is well on the way to bringing Ukraine in, imagine the boost to growth, to improvement in cost of living, to reconstruction in all that part of Ukraine. So although it's not the best outcome, it seems to me that a partition isn't all that bad. And if you look at what happened in Korea and in partition Germany during the Cold War, partition can sometimes be a good outcome, provided the West retains the stamina. And I think sometimes people forget that the West did retain the stamina in both these places. And in fact, American troops have been in South Korea since the 1950s. So the long game is possible for the West. It is. And that's why I think the decision to get Ukraine into NATO is so important, because it's not then just a question of finding the resilience and the determination to keep troops stationed in a country. It it brings Ukraine into our Western security structures. It gives them the collective defense guarantee that all NATO member states have. And Ukraine will be a real contributor to our alliance. Um, It's now fought the longest war in Europe since 1945. It's the most battle-hardened forces uh, anywhere in the NATO alliance. And when Poland joined the EU in the first 20 years, per capita uh, income doubled. And if Ukraine can do anything like that uh, as it moves towards the EU, it's going to be a successful place and the Russians are going to be spending their time trying to stop talent draining out of the eastern provinces of Ukraine towards the much more successful western part. So I do think that uh, there is a prospect that this will turn out to be a real disaster for Russia that will make them think again about their role in Europe. Could I suggest it's going to be difficult to be as cheerful about what's happening between Israel and the Palestinians now. And this has been going on, you could say, conflict has been normal since 1948, with a few breaks for a reasonable amount of peace. And there is no end in sight of this, unfortunately. Well, I'm afraid you're right. Uh, This has effectively been a forever war between Israel and the Palestinians. It's gone up and down. It's known periods of quiet and then uh, resumed conflict. And it's been terrible since the awful Hamas attack on Israel of the 7th of October. And the hard truth, I think, is that neither Netanyahu nor Hamas have a an interest at this point in uh, settling for a ceasefire. Netanyahu knows that his career will be over uh, once the fighting stops and the uh, reckoning starts in Israel as to what went wrong on the 7th of October. And of course, Hamas won't play any part in any post-conflict Uh, negotiations about the future. Uh, And so we are locked into a struggle between these two forces. At some point, it does have to come to a ceasefire. uh, And it's not going to be possible for Israel to achieve all the objectives that Netanyahu has set out, destroying Hamas. I mean, that, in fact, is not going to happen. You can't destroy a political, social organization, uh, as well as a terrorist organization. 
So at some point, there's going to be a ceasefire. Uh, and I think that the moderate Arab countries are going to have to be the ones who put their hands in their pockets, who really get committed to the reconstruction of Gaza afterwards. But they will demand a price for that. And it will be much greater Palestinian political freedoms. And maybe one day, bringing back on the table this long ambition of having uh, a two-state solution with the Palestinian state living in peace alongside Israel. That looks like an awfully long way away at the moment. But sometimes crises create opportunities. And I dare to hope that a future Israeli leadership and a new Palestinian leadership um, working with the moderate Arab countries and the West can find a way to move away from this forever war towards something which is better for all their peoples. I suppose the difficult question in that area, in that region, is Iran. And Iran also is playing a very long game. And it's very difficult to pin down exactly what the Iranians are wanting here. It is. Uh, and yes, they are a long-term threat in the region. Bear in mind that just a few months ago, the Chinese managed to broker an Iranian-Saudi entente of some kind. So it looked at that point as if the Iranians wanted to get away from the constant rivalry and low-level violence that they were they were inciting. But they've got two major proxies. They've got Hezbollah in Lebanon. They've got the Houthis in Yemen. Both of them are capable of posing real difficulties. And we've had just recently uh, a targeted Israeli strike on a Hamas leader in Beirut, which is further... Uh, I think, uh, increased tensions there. But my feeling is that the Iranians don't want an all-out war uh, with Israel and with America standing behind Israel with its aircraft carrier battle groups off in the Mediterranean. So they, I think they are looking to try to take advantage uh, of Israel uh, on the defensive, in international opinion, as well as uh, facing difficulties in Gaza, but within limits. Uh, the Houthi attacks on shipping are uh, an irritant. They are a reminder to the Arab world that Iran can still make the West pay a price. But I don't think it's going to come to all-out conflict. It's been quite striking how little actually uh, the Hezbollah has done in the last few months, given the scale of what's going on in Gaza. So it's, of course, uh, on a knife edge. The Americans are doing good work in deterring anything wider in terms of regional conflict. But right now, I don't think Iran is looking for all-out conflict. It's looking to, to position itself to advantage in the Arab world and in wider opinion as the most effective um, adversaries of Israel in this situation. When you were talking there, it reminded me of a conversation I once had with the Republican Senator John McCain. Unfortunately, he's passed away uh, a couple of years ago. And he, I said to him, uh, "Do you want to be world policemen, don't you, the United States? And he said, no, no, the United States never wants to be world policemen, but we certainly don't want anybody else to be doing it. So, so I think I think you may have... You may and have, since uh, nobody else will take on this kind of risky role of trying to find ways around these very, very spiny international problems, America has to. And if America doesn't, then nobody does. When we look back on the Biden presidency, one of the landmark issues was what to do about Afghanistan. And he got out very rapidly and left Britain feeling um, perhaps that we were pushed into it very quickly. Uh, so whether it's Biden or Trump, do we expect uh, a United States to be as engaged in the world as it has been traditionally in past past decades? I think a theme running through American foreign policy, through Obama, through Trump, and the first part of Biden, has been a sense of America pulling back from international leadership. 
after the traumas of Iraq and Afghanistan. That certainly seemed to be the case when Biden uh, rather mangled his final departure of American troops from Afghanistan at the beginning of his presidency, may even have emboldened Putin to uh, go for it in Ukraine. But I think the story of the last couple of years has been of an America re-engaging, realizing that it does have vital national interest in European security, reinforcing Europe with a lot of troops, taking the lead in supplying weapons and economic support to Ukraine, and also stepping up to uh, work the hardest of all in terms of shuttle diplomacy around the Middle East to try to damp down a regional conflict there, to try to browbeat Israel into pauses into allowing humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza. No other country has been doing anything like that. Certainly not Russia, certainly not China, certainly not India. Uh, And then when skirmishes start like the Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, who is it that fronts up? It's America. It's American warships that that are now defending Western shipping, along with support from some other Western allies. And of course, if it came to a major clash over Taiwan in uh, South China Sea, it would be America again. So I think America is increasingly seeing foreign policy uh, in terms of a competition with China. And I think Americans were as shocked as we were in the UK to find when we did go to non-aligned capitals after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that the reaction was uh, indifference, um, neutrality, uh, unwillingness to get engaged. And therefore, I think the Americans are coming to see that a prominent role, uh, building alliances, is vital to America's national interest, including in what is developing into the global competition with China. And so that's, I think, a new factor. Whether that will uh, stand the arrival of a Trump uh, presidency and a very Republican Congress, I don't know. Uh, But it's been a marked feature of the last couple of years, in my view. One of the most interesting questions, I think, at least in 2024, is what China will do about various things, including there's going to be elections in Taiwan. How do you see their role? Because the Chinese administration, whatever you think of them, plays a very long game. You're right. And I think the effect of the Ukraine war followed by the conflict in Gaza has been to make even clearer that if we are back in a Cold War, it's no longer a Cold War between the US and Russia. It's a Cold War between the US and China. I mean, China has benefited from the Ukraine war. That has drawn American attention away from the confrontation with China because it's given China access to a lot of cheap Russian oil and gas. Uh, It's turned Russia into a vassal state, effectively. And in the Middle East, uh, China has kept its cards pretty close to its chest. It hasn't played any part in the regional diplomacy. Interesting to note, it's again the Americans doing the heavy lifting there. But they are, I think, well positioned to benefit um, because in the eyes of many third world countries, uh, the West is hypocritical. We ask for support and when Russia attacks Ukrainian cities, uh, but we defend Israel when they attack Gaza. I mean, that's a simplification, but that's how it looks in many third world capitals. And China is set to benefit from that. Um, So I think they are feeling uh, in a pretty strong position in terms of foreign policy. Yes, there is the Taiwanese election coming up. Looks to me like the um, Democratic People's Party, the pro-independence party will win another term with a new president. 
but they have been fairly cautious on uh, how they are moving forward. I don't think they're going to bring it to a crisis uh, with Beijing. My own feeling is that if the Chinese look at what's happened in Ukraine, they're going to be a bit more uh, nervous about launching an all-out military assault on Taiwan. I don't think that's very likely, certainly in the next five years or so. Continued economic pressure, uh, continued efforts to isolate Taiwan, to strangle some of its technology industries, yes. But all-out war, given Putin's experience, I think is less likely. I suppose the other great unpredictable is what kind of America we're going to be facing this time next year. So a Trump America would be a very different matter from a Biden America. And there is, of course, presumably, still the possibility that another candidate could uh, appear. Is that uncertainty really something that we should worry about? I think the possibility of a Trump presidency is already weighing pretty heavily uh, on Western capitals. We've had the experience of four years of Trump. And uh, remember that this was four years of an inexperienced Trump who had no idea really how to pull the levers of power. And his chaotic approach, I think, enabled the uh, deep state, if I can use that term, in America to avoid um, some of the worst excesses. Uh, in the end, if you look back, yes, they pulled out of some of the main international organizations like the World Trade Organization or the climate talks, you know, but they didn't make any progress on, uh, for example, pulling out of NATO. A Trump too would be a smarter Trump, would be a Trump who knew uh, more effectively how to make his run within the US administration. And I think it would be harder for the checks and balances to work, to act as shock absorbers from, from some of Trump's more extreme ideas. So yes, it would be a period of real worry. Would Trump actually succeed in pulling the US out of NATO? I think that's more difficult because it would in the end be a congressional call, um, not a, an executive call. And there is still a lot of support in Congress on both sides of the aisle for uh, US position in NATO and what NATO brings to the US. But even if Trump made clear that he wouldn't stand behind America's commitments to NATO allies, that would have a devastating effect because in the end, NATO is based on confidence, not on treaty text. The treaty text is actually relatively weak. It's the political commitment behind it that is what matters. So that would be very damaging. Um, I think in Europe, my own feeling is that it should push whatever British government is in power after the end of this year to work more closely with our European allies, because actually we would have a common interest in standing up for international rules, uh, the international uh, institutions uh, from the attacks one could expect from Trump too. And if I was Zelensky, I think I'd be really worried because I think there'd be an uh, instinct on Trump's part to think he could fix the problem with his mate Vladimir Putin within his first weekend in office. That's another reason that pushes me to think that Zelensky might be quite smart to settle for some sort of armistice this coming summer to avoid the risk of finding himself with the Trump presidency and the Ukrainian position heavily weakened. That's a very interesting thought. And uh, I suppose all roads now lead back to Britain and Westminster and the prospect, as you suggested, there may be a change of, of government. You say in Hard Choices, your book, uh, that essentially Brexit, by making us weaker in Europe, has made us weaker on the world stage and perhaps less significant as an ally to the United States. So where are we now with our our foreign policy? Is it possible that Labour could change things if they come into power and repair relations with the European Union as a starting point for a, perhaps a, 
a bigger role in the world. I stand behind that analysis uh, in the book. Uh, I do think the chaotic way in which Brexit was handled, as well as the fact that we're not now sitting around that European table able to influence 27 states, a much larger economic and political bloc, I think that has diminished um, the UK's value in Washington uh, and our weight around the world. Of course, it hasn't completely extinguished it. Uh, and we've seen uh, in the last year or so that the UK still has a convening power, uh, which is significant. Uh, there was a very effective AI summit that Prime Minister Sunak called. Uh, there was a very good reconstruction conference on Ukraine. Um, we are capable of bringing the world together, but we are not capable as a single middle-sized country of imposing uh, norms and standards, for example, the new standard setting for AI is not going to be done by the UK, whatever the rhetoric of the British government. It's going to be done in Washington, in Beijing, uh, and perhaps in uh, e in the EU. Um, we've also found in the last few years that uh, being on your own means that you get less good trade deals with other countries because you don't have the economic clout to, to push the best deal possible. However, I think now with war in Europe uh, and extreme turbulence in the Middle East, uh, it's clear to everyone in London that we need to be working more closely with the European Union and individual European countries. We've seen a spectacular increase in the um, relationship with France over the last year or so. And I think a Labour government would certainly make a big effort in the first months to change the tone of our relations with the EU. The substance uh, is going to be more difficult because structural improvements in our relations with the EU going beyond what's in the trade and cooperation agreement will be piecemeal, will be slow, will be difficult. Um, and uh, I hope that a new government doesn't come in with exaggerated expectations about a, a kind of 100-day charm offensive in the EU leading to major transformations in our relations. That isn't going to happen. And I think it's going to have to therefore be a longer, slower process, perhaps a two-parliament process before we can really get back to something very close on the core issues like trade. In terms of the development of the European Union, we've seen in Poland, Polish voters rejecting uh, the right or the far right. Uh, we have seen the opposite perhaps in the Netherlands, where Gert Wilders has done rather well. Where do you see the nationalist populist tendency in the European Union going in the next year or two? I think it's a very mixed picture. And in general, I think populists do very well when they're campaigning and do very badly once they're in office. Uh, I think that was the story of Trump. It was the story of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, and in many ways, it was the story of the uh, Polish uh, far-right government, which, as you say, has now been ousted. And yes, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands has polled extremely strongly. Um, what he would be like if he was landed with the responsibility for actually governing in the Netherlands, I'm not so sure. Giorgio Maloney uh, in Italy was widely uh, feared, I think is a fair word, uh, before she came into office. Actually, her foreign policy has been in right down the middle and in staunch support for, for Ukraine and for NATO and no great troublemaking in the EU. Um, I suppose one country that we will need to watch in the next couple of years is France, where uh, the uh, far-right leader um, is polling very strongly. Um, Marine Le Pen did well in the last presidential election, and um, there is no uh, very strong single contender uh, in the centre-right of French politics or on the left against her. Uh, one will probably emerge, but uh, that is a conceivable uh, far-right victory in, in 2027 when that election comes around. But I think 
I think populists are most effective before they come into office. Uh, and once they're in office, then, then the forces of government um, tend to uh, expose them uh, and their policies, and either they become more centrist or they're voted out. So I am not so worried about the far-right threat in Europe. Um, I'm much more worried about a Trump in the White House uh, and four more years there. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. As we sort of wind this up, are there any areas which might cause surprises? The one that I think has been very seriously undercovered in the British press is our nearest neighbours, Ireland, the Irish Republic, and the thought that by the beginning of 2025, there has to be a general election in Ireland, and many of my Friends there say Sinn Féin are going to be in power and they may be the biggest party both north and south, which is both a domestic issue for Britain and also a foreign policy issue. Is there anything else that we're missing that we should look out for in the year ahead, do you think? Well, I think you're right about Ireland. I mean, we if, if the Stormont Assembly comes back in, it would have a Sinn Féin first minister. Uh, and if Sinn Féin wins south of the border, as you say, I mean, that is a very interesting new constellation. I've felt ever since Brexit that the issue of a united Ireland, which was really not in UK political discourse, is now at least back on the table as something that is conceivable in the longer term. Uh, and that's probably unsettling for many people in Northern Ireland, but I think it's a reality. I think the area of the world we haven't mentioned, uh, Gavin, and, and often gets overlooked is Africa. In 2023, we saw a spectacular collapse in the French position across the Sahel, with a series of uh, coups d'etat uh, uh, leading to more radical regimes, leading to demands for the French to pull out their forces. Uh, and that, that's true in Chad, it's true in Niger, it's true in Burkina Faso. And uh, with migration rising, with extremism on the increase, um, they, they are in a much weakened state and there's no other Western power to take their place. China on the economic side, Russia on the arms supply side, have basically pushed the European Union and the Americans out of um, influence in much of uh, that part of Africa. And then one last thing, India. There is actually an election in India this year. I don't suppose it will lead to a change of government. Uh, but there again, India has emerged as a really a swing uh, player between China, America, Europe, Russia, uh, benefiting from all sides, uh, aligned with none, looking out for its own national interest, but a crucial player in the years ahead, uh, one of the countries that has probably benefited from the turbulence and, and uncertainties elsewhere. So yes, a very uncertain world. The Russia, the I think the election that we needn't worry about at all in terms of trying to predict the outcome is the the election in Russia. Uh, I don't. I, mean, I suppose it's a question of whether it'll be ninety eight or ninety nine percent support for Putin, um, but not much uh, suspense around that. I think. 
Well, I think on that, we can all agree, even if that's not actually a note of particular optimism for many of our listeners. Lord Ricketts, Peter Ricketts, thank you very much. And thank you for all of you for listening to this episode of This Is Not A Drill. Stay tuned this year. This is Not A Drill, was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parra, and social media by Jess Harvey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.